Hello and welcome back to another episode of Integrating Self. My name is Kevin. Today I'm joined by Pastor Anthony down in Texas. Welcome. Thanks, Kevin. So glad to be here, man. I'm stoked. An honor. So some of you may recognize his voice, seeing how you can't quite see his face. He's one of the hosts of the podcast, Seeking What They Sought. So I'm excited because that is one of my favorite podcasts. So it's kind of cool to have you here for doing this when I've been watching all your stuff. So it's kind of, I think there's a bit of fun in that as well. <laughs> yeah, man, a hundred percent. This is a meeting of colleagues here. So we're, I'm excited to be here, bro. I'm excited for, I love your podcast. So I love the the mission. So glad to be here. Awesome. And in, in this podcast, we are looking at the um, integration or the the hardship of ethnic diversity within the Adventist church. And so I'm excited for you to come and share that, you know, what have you faced? So starting from the beginning, you mentioned, and this always seems to come up somehow, but you're Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow Canadian jokes make it almost to every episode. (laughs) That's so great. So how did you go from Canadianism, Canadian Mm -hmm. life, Canadian birth, I suppose, Mm -hmm. to being a pastor down in Texas? You're at... uh, the university church at Southwestern University. So what was that like? And did you ever realize or come to question Adventism as a cultural space during your youth and adolescence? Oh, wow. Yeah. Big question. Um, yeah. So I, um, my parents were immigrants from the Caribbean. And so um, to Canada, kind of around this time, the time when they immigrated, they were both kids. So it was actually my grandparents who immigrated. My mom is Jamaican and my uh, my dad is from the island of Grenada and their parents had immigrated to Canada when they were young. And then um, the, both of them went to CUC, now Berman, Canadian Union College, but now Berman. And then um, after they got married and had me, we probably moved around four, maybe when I was like four or five to the States um, because my dad felt called to go back to school, become a pastor. So... Um, so yeah, we we moved to the state. So I didn't really get. We were just joking about this before we were recording. I didn't get much Canadian in me. Uh, you know, there's. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Have, I don't speak like a Canadian. I'm. I sound pretty <laughs> American. Um, you know, I don't say the washroom, and I only know a couple stanzas of the Canadian athel- national anthem. So, so I'm kind of a a fake Canadian, but but it is home for sure, and I I do keep that card in my. I keep my birth certificate on deck just in case I need to <laughs> go home. <laughs> just throw a couple of A's in there. And how do you say, is it roof or rough? Ooh, I think I, I, I um, go back and forth. I, I, and I, I, actually, someone said that about me the other day. They're like, you say the word um, bag weird because I said bag. And they're like, what did you just <laughs> say? I was like, bag. And they're like, it's bag. <laughs> so there's a few words that I think I still still do it with but excellent yeah yeah man so mentioning that you grew up a pastor's kid you know the acronym pk Mm -hmm. what was that like with your cultural expression or did you feel like you had a cultural expression being that you moved Mm -hmm. around from community to community yeah for sure you know i i would say yeah i'm glad we're talking about this i would say that my my sense of cultural and cultural identity, cultural expression was um, very eclectic growing up. My um, growing up as a Caribbean immigrant, because there were many who came to Canada during the time when my 
parents' families did. It's almost like an interesting third culture that is created. Um, and I think that growing up, I I just felt like I was like everybody else around me. You know, I grew up in a very um, predominantly white, I would say, middle class kind of environment when it comes to like neighborhood, school, um, and then all throughout probably my childhood up until high school. Yeah, really, I um, like at church, my dad had pastored at a um, predominantly, again, predominantly white um, Adventist church until maybe at high school. And then we moved over to Seattle. We were living in a small town in Washington. And then we moved to Seattle and he pastored a, an African-American church. He got moved. And that was a pretty big moment of cultural um, awareness for me. I would say, you know, if I had to pick one, that was probably the moment where I realized, oh, Adventism is broader than this one expression. Um, I I think, am I answering your question? We're oh, just yeah. going. I'm, okay. Yeah. I'm not just rambling. <laughs> it's all good. Because that's the kind of thing I've been very curious about. Because obviously, as a white Irish dude background, mm -hmm. I didn't have much <laughs> going. And my culture expression was haystacks. Fair. <laughs> Which is a valid cultural expression. Sure. Classic. And the occasional ma maple syrup, too. Nice. So when, Wait, maple when syrup on the haystacks? Hmm, that's an interesting thought. That's the most Canadian thing I've heard this week. Maybe. We'll have to try that. <laughs> nice. Okay. So w when you moved to Seattle and you saw this difference from a white church to an African church, did you? how mm -hmm. would you feel with your identity of this is the church I belong to? Bro, I would say that it, 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 was, it was a catalytic turning point in my life, I would say, to be honest, um, religiously and culturally together. Um, because I think... As I had said, I think that I associated kind of this, yeah, I guess middle American whiteness as synonymous with Adventism. And not that that was even negative or positive. I think I just thought that's what it was. I thought, oh, that's what this is. And then when we moved, it was a huge shock for me. And um, to even make it more complex, I think that I thought that that's also what I was, sort of this <laughs> middle American... Caucasian middle class culture. And so, and that's maybe a whole nother conversation about me like figuring out my own blackness. But I think that I um like I I didn't really identify with um or maybe I'll say it in a positive sense. I I I just looked at other, you know, like my community around me, kind of that again, middle class suburban white America as my culture. That's kind of what my culture was. And when we moved to Seattle, my dad, when he moved churches, and all of a sudden we're at this African-American church and they dressed differently and they spoke differently and the music was like gospel centered and there were like drums and like, um, it was awesome, but it was also so different for me because I was, um, and then like another layer of this, also interrupt me anytime if I'm rambling, another layer of this was um, I, <clears throat> I was like, I grew up kind of in the, I guess you could say renaissance of like the like pop punk, like emo kid, gothic kind of era, um, kind of in middle school, high school. Um, and, you know, I remember um, that that kind of became my identity at the time. Like I, you know, I shopped at the store Hot Topic. I don't know if you remember that store in the mall a lot. <laughs> um, you know, Excellent. I, yes, yes. <laughs> that was, that was me. So I, you know, I was, so I, I was showing up to church again, to my church of mostly, you know, 
white American Adventist with, you know, with my tight pants and my, you know, my, right. I had my skinny jeans and my studded bracelets and my fingernails were painted black. And oh, no way. So talking about like cultures of subcultures of subcultures, I was also like a representative representative of this like niche kind of emo Gothic punk rock subculture. Um, and when we moved to the church in Seattle, I remember a massive culture shock because the black kids there were like, bruh, like, <laughs> who are you? And why do you, why, why are you dressing like, like, you know? Um, and I remember um, a lot of turmoil at the time because I, it was a lot of, you know, and I was like 14, 15, I was entering high school. It, you know, it's a time of your life where you're trying to figure out who you are. So I've said a lot of words, but I guess in summary, yes, I think that 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 move and that shift and moment in my life was catalytic and representative of um, me recognizing that Adventism was wider. Yeah, I mean that's that sounds like the quite the uh, the shift, and I want to ask more about that phrase you said, discovering yeah. your blackness, because mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't realize you had moved just during high school because that that is multi-layered in personal development. High school becomes a lot more about what your friends think than what your parents think. That's a very basic psychological event. So moving into a new church at that time while Mm -hmm. representing a subculture more attached to white people at Hot Topic. (laughs) Yep. We all went through the goth thing, I'm sure. But yeah, what yeah. was that like? What what does it mean to discover your blackness? Wow. Yeah, man. I think that um you know, there's a um there's a few there's a few good books that I've read recently about like internalized racism and um stuff like that and I think um at the time growing up as a kid, I would not have said like, "Oh, I have internalized racism" because I didn't I just wasn't thinking on that level or nor did I know what that concept was. But I think that I grew up with a lot of internalized racism. I think that I, because of the um, communities I grew up in, again, very white, upper middle class um, America, I think that um, some of the perspectives, not all, I don't want to paint with you know broad strokes, um, not everyone, but certainly some, I think, of the perspectives about black people, I think, seeped into my own self-knowing. And so I think from a young age, I decided to distance myself from those perceptions. You know, I, I, I remember making a decision in like fourth grade that I was never going to curse. I was never going to dress in a certain way that I perceived, you know, that I thought would, would cause white people to perceive me as um, these negative stereotypes of blackness, you know, baggy pants, jewelry, et cetera. And I remember making a decision, and again, those seem like shallow things, but as a fourth grader, you know, I'm watching TV, right? Or, you know, I hear people talking, and I think I just associate, oh, that those things are what it means to be black. And I don't want anything to do with those things because those things seem to be negative um, to the people around me. So I think from a young age, I, I distance myself from those things, but also blackness in general. And so when later in my life, when I, when we moved to Seattle, I, I was confronted with blackness and it was far more richer and more beautiful and expansive than I had put it into this little box. Um, and so I think there was a lot of tension for me, just like trying to unpack that and trying to maneuver and accept and also feel like, man, where, yeah, who am I then? You know, like, cause I've, I've taken on this kind of 
culture and then the subculture within this culture, um, the culture of whiteness, but then the subculture within whiteness of this like very niche kind of punk emo um, persona. And um, yeah, it, it was hard. It was, it, it was tough. So there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has, I would say that the journey of loving my own blackness has been a pursuit of that has stretched into my adult life as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's something that it's very interesting as having been a for, uh, should say having been a teacher and a youth worker, because you look at the development of kids, of students, of teens, and those things last. How you see yourself mm -hmm. can take many years to unpack, rewrite, mm -hmm. and you face that in a very sudden, big way of this move to Seattle. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, with this move to Seattle, this black church, where's where does the um, the difference happen between just mm -hmm. quote unquote black culture to more specific Caribbean culture? Because mm. this church sounded more like it was African based. Mm -hmm. Of course, not all black people are the same. So yeah. wh when did you come to, oh, actually, this is what an Islander is like opposed to general yeah. African culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I think that I, um, I think, so one key moment I remember was, um, or maybe before I talk about that, I'll say that I think that I, um, growing up, I felt a little disconnected from my Caribbean heritage in many ways. Like, you know, I had Caribbean food, you know, so I've had, you know, all of the staples, hallmarks of a lot of, you know, Jamaican cuisine and stuff like that. Like my grandparents are amazing cooks and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, Caribbean music and stuff like that. So I was connected in a lot of ways, but, um, I was also two generations out from the islands, right? Because my my parents' parents had immigrated, and then they had had my you know that my parents had grown up in Canada, and then I was born in Canada. So there's just so much distance that from from the islands that I think I grew up with kind of like this ghost or this cultural memory, this familial memory of Caribbean heritage, but but not um, it wasn't necessarily um, forefront in our lives uh, to to say. So I think when I when we moved to Seattle and I um, encountered kind of African-American culture, to me, I there was also that feeling of like, well, these people are black, but they're also not my kind of black. There was this, uh, and that's not necessarily a good or bad or like negative thing, but just like I, I still felt the difference um, because over time, I actually came to like love those people and we had an awesome youth group and I, I became good friends with a lot of those people. Um, which is a far cry from the first day when I showed up at that church and some girl looked at me and she's like, why are you wearing girl pants? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what to say because I was. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think over time, as I became more enmeshed with that community and those friends, I still felt a sense of, ah, but I'm still different. Um, to be Caribbean Canadian or Caribbean American is different than being um african-american um so ah oh man i don't know if i answered your question it may have gotten lost but no we're just yeah the differentiation between um being african-american or caribbean-american because i know those cultures do have a lot of connection because of the slave trade so a lot of mm -hmm. africanisms 
and African culture was brought and modified on the islands. Mm-hmm. But you were, your experience was something new and shocky, but still reminded you that you weren't fully part of that church because you were a different culture. So it was kind of like yeah. a double duty moment almost. Yeah, almost. Man, I feel like you're just helping me process my childhood trauma right now. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you're I think you're right, bro. I think um there was sort of a dual um rediscovery that was happening. Um, which and I don't know if we'll get here, but I think, you know, that rediscovery wouldn't come to culmination probably till I was in my twenties when I was able to like circle back and like read Caribbean history and 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 delve into uh, for myself for a, a little bit more. Cause I think for a long time I was honestly, frankly, I was disconnected from my own like his story and history and culture. Um yeah. Yes. So uh, in parallel with that, because the church both gave you the whiteness background, but also gave you the shock. Like it was mm-hmm. a very sudden switch. I had been wondering, and I guess I I, I wore the right shirt because the shirt I'm wearing says mm-hmm. break up with black Jesus. I mean, break up with white Jesus. Okay. <laughs> so with your discovering your, your blackness, your heritage with realizing that mm-hmm. Adventism is bigger than the white suburban kind of background mm-hmm. you have. What did that do to your faith system or your view of Jesus? Because often Jesus is, depict- is depicted mm-hmm. white, blonde hair, sometimes even blue eyes, you know, the perfect sash, mm-hmm. these kind of things. Like, So what That's was true. your image changing of who Jesus and God was? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's intriguing to me. Um, yeah, I don't, I think everything that has been said, not aside, but having said everything that I just said, I think that from a young age, I was able to discern that I don't know that I ever truly associated Jesus with whiteness per se. I don't know that that's ever something that I, um, and again, yeah, not to, talk negative, say inherently negative things about whiteness, but I don't think that I um, necessarily associated him with a certain race or people group. I think that from a young age, I I always kind of pictured him as something else, um, something unique. Um, and yeah, I think because of that, maybe I had like, and my personality I'm interrupting myself, but my my personality, I think, all also naturally lends itself to high degrees of like empathy. I think that I, um, f- again, from a young age, have always like kind of defaulted to seeing the world from the perspectives of others um, easily, and that I kind of live my life seeking to understand other people. Like I almost have like an insatiable, ravenous hunger to understand people and figure out how they think and work and what their life is like and experiences. And I think I've always kind of done that. So because of that, I think um, maybe that's helped me along the way, whereas maybe others um, weren't, maybe haven't been privileged with that disposition. But I think because of that, it's helped me to, um, yeah, just sort of envision in my head like, um, oh, this is actually bigger, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't think there was ever a time where I was just like, oh, Adventism, you know, Jesus. It, it's one thing, well, let me rephrase. This is one of those moments we talked about before we started. Let me rephrase. I think, yes, I think growing up in Adventism, I was presented with one Adventism culturally, 
that like, oh, this is what Adventism is. But I think that I never equated Adventism with God or Jesus as the whole picture, the whole spectrum. Ah, I said spectrum. The whole spectrum <laughs> of like religion or following Jesus, Christianity, etc. So your your shock of going to Seattle this moment was more personal, more mm-hmm. what does it mean to be black, which yes. was separate and not ter- not very connected to Jesus. The the Jesus image stayed this kind of other, not nailed down to a certain color thing. Mm-hmm. So that was a good, almost a kind of a safeguard. It, you know, it didn't, your image of Jesus didn't crack or have to go through this transformation. So you only had to do one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. And I think I've also always had like a very like skeptical, um, cynical read between like, I want to know, like, what does the book actually say? And then when I open the book and realize, oh, like Jesus was like a, he was born in Nazareth. Like he's from the Middle East. He's a brown man. I think that that, that was just so obvious to me from a really young age um, that it just was never a question. I was like, I, I feel like, yeah, that, that was always something that I, I knew. It, this led me to when I was teaching to do a um a school wide mm-hmm. um polling where we polled all um all the students on white versus historical Jesus and we actually found mm. it to be a fifty fifty split. Mm. Yeah, it was the high school kids mostly were historical Jesus, we called him. And more middle school elementary was white Jesus. We held up two pictures and they voted which one was more accurate. Ooh. And then we actually went around the school and took a tally of all the images of Jesus. And mm-hmm. we found that about half of them were white. We had a couple black and white ones. We had a couple that were native um, mm. style. But it was, it, it was a really cool moment. It came from a, um, a math lesson, no less. But it was a cool moment mm. that the entire school was like, wait, what? Wow. And my students are like, wait, what? <laughs> And we, yeah. we talked about what does our perception of Jesus do for us? Mm. And it was quite, I, I wrote up a whole, we did a whole report. We made it look like a, an official study. We even sent it to the school board and like kind of published it in a small way. And mm-hmm. it was a bit of a wake up call to some of those kids that, yeah, Jesus was born in the Middle East. Wow. He had a v- very common name. Yeah. He was kind of a nobody. He was born in a scandalous moment. Like, yeah, yeah. Some of the, some of those things, like you mentioned, sometimes get overlooked. Yeah, they really do. Yeah. And so man. now that we're tracing, you know, we we trace some of your history. You've you had your culture shock in Seattle, mm-hmm. and it, you graduated high school. What was it that brought you to become a pastor, and what is mm-hmm. it like now? Because you've been a pastor, you said for about eight, ten years. You're at a university church in Texas, which traditionally is very Republican white mm-hmm. stereotypes. State, I've, mm-hmm. I've never been there. I, I think I landed in the Houston airports once for a ter- uh, for exchange. Okay. So what's that part like, you No, know, going through, you went to Walla Walla University, seminary. Mm-hmm. What was it like in your adult years? Yeah, man, I think that... Um... I'm, I'm, I have a tendency to be long-winded, so I'm going to synthesize. No, it's completely th- fine, man. We got lots of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think that I, um, so becoming a pastor, I guess the short version would be, I, you know, I have a stereotypical pastor uh, origin story, so to speak. I, 
excuse me, I never wanted to be a pastor at all. I think that I, uh, my dad, as I mentioned, was a pastor. Um, but my family, because of our immigrant um, status and our story, um, my mom had a lot of visa issues. Um, and so, which I know a lot of people resonate with. And um, so because of that, only my dad could work, which was tough. I have two siblings. We have a big family. Um, so things were always tight for us growing up. My family um, went through some like um, hardships and um, tragedy. <clears throat> ended up losing our home at a, a certain point. Um, and so I think because of a lot of those things, like um, moments um, of desperate need and, you know, there are moments where my dad called us into the living room and would say, hey, we, you know, there's no food, so we need to pray. Um, and uh, we'd pray and then God would do miracles. A bag of rice would show up on the front door, um, you know. So from I would say from a very young age, I both knew the realness of God. And I had parents with very vibrant spiritual lives and spirituality was a real live active thing for both of them. Um, they, uh, they weren't, you know, people of faith in talk, but, you know, on any given morning you could wake up and find them in the living room praying together, Bibles open. And so I witnessed that growing up. So faith was very real for me um, in my house and my family. Um, but um, also I experienced sort of, um, I don't know, the cost of ministry, perhaps, um, and um, and just some hardships in life, and um, so I think from uh, when I was in high school, I kind of made the decision, like, man, I, I, I really just want to like be secure and make money, and like not have to worry about stuff like that, or moving all the time, or um, you know, all the stuff that my dad kind of dealt with. And so um, going into undergrad, I picked um, the major that makes the most money, art major. I, <laughs> nice. I um, <laughs> and I guess the short version of th that journey was for a long time, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. And I sort of just like, I was in a bunch of bands, like I was in bands, uh, like rock bands and like, um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do for a while. Like, man, I just want to like make punk music and like, like, you know, I, I was in a screamo band for a while and, um, wow. you know, I, yeah, I was the vocalist. Really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All those skinny yeah. jeans coming back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was still wearing those at the time. Um, wow. so that was undergrad. Um, so there's some videos and Spotify links that exist somewhere, but, um, um, yeah, I, and that's kind of what I wanted to do for a long time. I felt a, uh, kind of a rebellious spirit and nature, um, and I, but I had had sort of a, um, a transformative experience with, um, the gospel in, in kind of that near the end of high school had a, 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 the Dean at our Academy who kind of introduced me to Jesus, uh, in a real way for the first time when I was around 17. And so because of that, um, I, 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 I the way I tell it now is I've had a, um, I wanted to do anything but be a pastor but I just felt like the gospel was the only thing I cared about truly in my life was the one thing that I, it, cause it had saved my life. I was a utterly depressed, borderline suicidal, um, self-harming, um, teenager for most of high school. Um, you know, so there was, the, you know, kind of the emo persona out in out front publicly forward facing, but within, um, also very true, very dark, lots of darkness, uh, in those years. Um, never attempted. Um, but I was close and I, um, 
meeting Jesus changed my life, like maybe probably saved my life. And um, I, and so because of that, I kind of carried that with me through a lot of my young adulthood and to undergrad. And um, I, I just felt like I, I needed to, it, I needed it to be, it was just my whole life. But I didn't. I didn't want to be that guy. I, I felt the fret, I felt the the dissonance of ah, I don't want to be the stereotypical pastor's kid who becomes a pastor. It's just so stereotypical. It's almost <laughs> like I didn't want it for the story's sake. I, I wanted to be different. I have. I've. I've been kind of a bit of a contrarian and a, an individual. Uh, thought of myself as a special boy sometimes throughout my life. So I <laughs> like, man, I want to do my own thing, you know. But eventually, as the story goes, um, man, I think. God just pursued me, I think, relentlessly. And I think at the end, um, I I ended up switching my major simply because I was involved in some ministry on campus and I just couldn't shake that this was what I was supposed to be doing. And it just felt like it clicked. It felt like fine. Like I tried all these majors and I was communications and art and graphic design and journalism and like all these different things, but I never loved any of it. And I was just sliding by and eventually it just happened um, where I was like, okay, I accept this. Um Man, I tried to not be long-winded, but that was so long. But, <laughs> it's all um, good. I guess getting to Texas was is well, it's also a bit of a journey. That could be a whole, probably another podcast in and of itself. But I will say that I'll, I guess I'll skip ahead to seminary, which was a few years ago for me. Um, I was sent to seminary by uh, California, but kind of near the end, uh, southeastern California, so Loma Linda, La Sierra area. I had pastored at La Sierra University Church for a couple of years. I was I was in Ben Amoa's uh, position, actually. I know you know. Oh, no way. Yeah, so Ben, I'm I'm Ben's predecessor, uh, for for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ben is a good friend. He's a homie. Um, but yeah, I he's awesome. He's so great. He's um, so awesome. He's one of the good ones. Um, yeah. So they had sent me to seminary. My, my, my time had come, but um, near the end, they had said, hey, hey we, we're not sure um, where to place you, um, you know, when you come back, because I was getting ready to graduate. And they were like, we don't, we're not sure we have a spot for you. Um, so if you get another opportunity from another conference, take it. And that's when, um, that's when Texas came along and they, they stole me. They, they said, hey, we have a, a job opportunity. And to be honest, man, it, it was not what I expected um, to be doing or where I expected to be, um, to be in the South. Because uh, I'm a West Coast, you know, I was born in the, Se- I was not born, but born in Canada, raised in the Seattle area. Um, you know, I, you know, a flaming liberal, as they say, um, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, while I've, I, I, I tend to not identify with extremes on either side of the political spectrum, but I definitely grew up in the, right, like the progressive liberal sauce of the West Coast. And so that's had an effect on me. So I think um, I never imagined pastoring in, in Texas. Um, but through kind of a series of um, events, God made it really kind of undeniably clear to me that this is where maybe clearer than anything that I've experienced in a long time. Uh, I can go into more of that if you want, but, um, and so I just was finally like, okay, God, like, I guess this is where you want me to be. So here I am in Texas. Well, I do have to ask a clarifying question. Mm-hmm. You were in California. You did your um, seminary. Mm-hmm. Did they hire Ben and that's why you couldn't go back? Do we blame Ben for that? Yes, Ben is the villain of the story. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Oh, I was okay. No, yeah, they. 
I left, when I left, um, I think it was sort of um, with the understanding that I would come back in some other role, probably. Like it, it okay. was, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I was okay with that. Yeah. And, and we joke because we both know Ben and he also yes. did a po- podcast episode. So if you haven't listened to that, take a commercial break, go listen to that. <laughs> and we'll move, right. Now we'll move back, resume our programming. So with all that history, with all that change from white suburbia with your emo phase that Mm -hmm. wasn't just a projection, but something happening deep inside to Mm. the African church in Seattle to Walla Walla, which is a pretty, pretty cool university that I enjoyed being at. Then of course you, you furthered your West coast vibes in Loma Linda and that area. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing that all with you to Texas. (laughs) Right. So in your professional space, you know, you're, you're leading and you also have your online work through your podcast. What is it like now using that story or those, you know, mm-hmm. your past memories and experiences? How have that, how has that informed your, your ministry or the way you operate in Texas now? Wow. Um, yeah, man, I, maybe I'll start with saying, I, I think it's definitely, was a culture shock for sure. Um, you know, people speak differently, dress differently, their politics are different, um, uh, values maybe differently aligned. Um, and so I think um, it was definitely like a bit of a like, oh, wow, like almost similar akin to that moment when we moved to the church in Seattle when I was like, oh, I'm I'm different. Like these people are different than me and I'm different than them. Um, but I think that story that story actually encourages me now. Like that was such a, a difficult time as a teenager, an emotional, angsty teenager, because you know, you're you're afraid. And I think this is maybe a, a borderline universal fear, right? It's that fear, like what if I'm myself in front of this new group of people and they don't accept me? Right. Yeah. Like what if I bring my my true self as I actually am, not a projection, but the real me, will I be accepted? Will I be loved? Will I be enough? And I think that's maybe the cry of every heart. Um, And I think that that was the fear for me. Like, if I just am myself, will that be enough for them? And what's funny enough is eventually it was um, with with that church. I I remember there was a game night where I didn't want to go so bad. I was a 15-year-old kid and I had this full-blown tantrum in the car, like screaming, crying, because my parents were trying to drop me off of this this video game night, like this lock-in, right? This sleepover at church. And I was like screaming and crying, like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But then fast forward a couple years later, some of that youth group has had some of my closest friends and um, there was acceptance on the other on the other end of it. If I was just willing to step out and present myself and just be myself and and bring bring my authentic self, and I think the same is true has been true here in Texas. I think um, people. I've been saying this a lot recently. I think people are kind of just people, no matter where you go. And for the most part, again, there are exceptions for sure. For the most part, I think most people are generous. Um, they have families and things they hope for, dreams, um, sorrows, griefs. And I think if we just allow the differences to be, yes, but also um, I have found just like bring my authentic self. I, people, have, people have actually, frankly, surprised me. I've actually been shocked 
um, living down here now. It's only been th- almost four months, so I'm still pretty fresh. Um, yeah. In 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 the job, but but people have surprised me uh, with their with how welcoming they've been, non judgmental. Um, so it's been good. Uh, and that's awesome because we want people to be the fullness of who they are. I think that's the mm. that's the heart of church. Is we we preach you are redeemed, you are saved. We have all these lovely um, sermon notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, time and time again, oh, you need to do this, right? Like for me growing up, those markers mm-hmm. were obviously church on Saturday, Sunday church was evil. Mm-hmm. I grew up kind of disgusted by people that ate meat. Mm-hmm. Like I, I fully recognize I put way too much identity into eating meat. And do you eat meat now? Yes, because I married a Filipino. So it's <laughs> oh, crucial. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so my process no, has been reducing and actually getting back to i mean the church gave me both the gospel and you are accepted god has redeemed you but it also gave mm-hmm. me all those identity markers of we well, need to be mm-hmm. this 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 and this mm-hmm. right and i grew up in a very predominantly white um town and church which has gotten a little bit more diverse and so when i when part of the reason i love doing this podcast is when i met other cultures at first it scared me mm. it, it really did because it was well that's not how that's supposed to be. Like it just, it kind of, I don't know if scared's the right direct word, but that's kind of what it felt like. And then over high school, Kevin realized, no, different differences should be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's always the, that's the question I always pose to the, um, the guest speakers on this podcast is what has your difference done for you? And so mm-hmm. you shared quite beautifully. <laughs> the difference that got smacked in your face moving to Seattle and the difference of moving to Texas, which has been a blessing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been wondering what would, what would it take for the Adventist yeah. church to be on the difference of blessing where difference is seen as celebration? Mm. Cause we are mm-hmm. noted to being, I think like the most diverse denomination in the world. Right. But as you showed in your story there's still very much a white church and a black church yeah right yeah. my my wife went to a filipino church in about in canadian terms about 800 meters down the road was another church mm-hmm. and so what does it take for those churches to be one church physically right mm-hmm. because we we can attach to culture through music food and language mm-hmm. but i'm always left wondering like are we allowing culture now to divide us into our groupings and have we forgotten the the big church? So what would it take for us to to be a good difference in the same space even? Mm. Yeah, man, it's a really good question. And I think a question that, yeah, like it's on our mind at the church here. And I think it's probably on a lot of people who do ministry on their minds as well. I think that I, um, I think that maybe if I could clarify the question, are you asking what practical like what practical steps what it would look like practically for a church to be a church that celebrates difference rather than maybe demonizes or et cetera? Yeah, practical or if there's a third piece of theology we need to tweak, like what would it mm-hmm. what would it take for that study of with the most diverse church? 
mm-hmm. to filter down to actually, you know, you walk into a physical church and it is diverse opposed to a black church here and white church there. Yeah. So what would it take for us yeah. to be diverse on a Sabbath morning in the same building? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I would first of all say that that's an interesting premise um, because I think that, um, like, I don't know if you remember when um, there was a time, maybe it was like 2011 or so, where, where um, Dwight Nelson, the pastor of PMC, he made this big push for the ending of of regional conferences. I don't know if you remember this. This was a while back. Okay. So I was at Andrews when um, Dwight, he started making like a big push for the ending of the regional conferences. And he, and he was kind of asking the same question, like, why, why do these exist still? <laughs> like, we need, to, we need to do better. And, um, you know, he was making a push for it. And there, I remember there was a petition that was made. Um, but I remember it became really challenging because many of the black many of the regional conference uh, churches they felt like well we haven't really reconciled with why the system exists in the first place um we haven't reconciled with kind of the history here um where you know originally you know um what after you know uh kind of in the segregation era when like black churches were meeting and they came to the conferences and they wanted to you know, join the conferences and the conferences said, no, sorry, you're, you can't be recognized, you know, as an official church. So they started their own. And I remember, um, having a conversation, um, with a friend of mine, Michael Nixon, he was the vice president of diversity and inclusion at, at Andrews university and, and him talking a little bit about kind of, um, the lingering history and the weight of that, that follows us into today and how, Nowadays, we're in an interesting moment where um, even if we wanted to have a unified church, I don't know that, for instance, the black church would even want that. I don't know that a Filipino church would even want that. I don't know that the, um, you know, and to me, I think the, re- you know, maybe what, perhaps one of the reasons is um, it's very difficult to both to do what you're proposing. <laughs> it's difficult to, I think, celebrate and celebrate culture at the same time as um, have have something that we can be unified around. I think I think that that's that's probably the problem. <laughs> is that it's yeah. like how how exactly do we do that? Like I definitely think there are ways, but I think. Yeah, I think that that's that's the challenge. Yeah, because obviously you would have to agree on a lot of things that can get in the way of that unity, like language. Obviously, it's easy for me to say everyone should speak English because that's the only language I speak. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if the tables were turned and they're like, actually, Kevin, for everyone to be together, you need to learn Spanish. Right. Yeah, that that could introduce some difficulties in a in a unity approach for sure <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think i mean it, it it creates some interesting questions about like what does unity look like you know yeah. like does unity does unity look like necess- does unity necessitate that we all go to one gathering or that all the adventists in one city or state go to one gathering or does or um or does it necessitate that the churches do their own thing on sabbath but then they have other ways of being intentional to me i think um, again, I, 
your boy's a rambler, but because I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a verbal processor, so I, I'm on the journey, and then I'll get there at the end. But I think maybe where I've been trying to get at is, I wonder if it begins with simply asking the question, "What would more unity look like?" Um, because I don't know if the answer is unity equates all cultures go are together in one gathering. Maybe it does. Um, but maybe it also doesn't. But are we even asking the question, are we being intentional? And I think because it's so historically, it's so you know rooted in history, right? These divides and um, and people are so people are so used to the way that things are when you get into a routine and you know, like it's difficult. Um, and then, you know, as from working at big churches, so I've worked at a couple of university churches now, I've I've had the privilege, the the blessing and an honor to have worked at those churches, truly a gift, but also experienced what happens when you try and satisfy everyone. <laughs> you you almost end up satisfying no one. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a time at La Sierra where we were trying to experiment with like doing a blended service where we had just all the services combined, the different music styles, and really nobody was happy because it's like the people who didn't like drums were going to be vocal about not no drums. The people who you know, didn't like hymns. We're going to be vocal about no hymns. So, uh, uh, you know, eventually, so that's why I think a lot of, in a lot of places, we just end up with these siloed individualized spaces because it's like, it's almost easier. It's, it's less work. It's just less tension. Um, so yeah, man, but maybe it begins with simply asking the question, what would more unity look like? And then sort of coming together as a community um, of of different cultures, maybe having a meeting or a coalition, and and um, and saying, man, what what could this look like? What could we do to collaborate? You know. Thanks again for listening to this episode of our podcast. As we end, I would like to acknowledge that these conversations are recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Stolo Nation. With a big special thanks to our executive producer, Alexander Carpenter, our editor, Bryce Hallock, and to our creative team. We have Brittany May with logo design and Jared Jameson on audio. Also, a big shout out to our Spectrum friends over in New York City for their continued support of this program. Thanks.